You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simu, and on this edition, we're going to be rounding up all the big stories from the weekend's football. We're going to be discussing Arsenal's win at Aston Villa. We're going to be talking about Spurs' victory over West Ham, what that means for the top four race. We'll be reviewing the FA Cup action as well as discussing the celebration police, William Saliba, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Steven Gerrard's bizarre comments regarding Bukayo Saka. Lots and lots to get into. And as I can see, there are plenty of you in the live chat alongside me as well. Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Um, hope you've enjoyed the sunshine if you're based here in London. And I hope that the weather's been great wherever else you are on the globe. Uh, thank you for tuning into the programme as always. If I could just quickly remind you before I get into the show, because otherwise I forget and then we get too deep into it and then I've got to say it a little bit later on when we're in full flow and it's a little bit annoying. Please do hit the like button if you haven't done so already. Make sure you do. It really, really does help. And of course, subscribe to the channel if you are new. Okay, let's kick off with Arsenal's win against Aston Villa. We've done the post-match reaction. We've done all of that over the weekend. But looking back on it now, uh, after a couple of days, how significant a result was that for the Arsenal? Well, it's massive because Arsenal now sit on 54 points. Had Arsenal lost, we'd be level on points now with Spurs. And although they've played a game more than us, they'd be in a position where if they won that game coming up later on in the season, we still don't know exactly when, the North London derby, Spurs would have the opportunity to leapfrog us. So it's really, really important that Arsenal got all three points. It was against an Aston Villa side that many thought we'd struggle against. It was a game that people who want Arsenal to fail were looking at and saying, well, this could be a potential banana skin. But we went there, we played well for the most part. I think towards the end, we got a little bit nervous. I thought we started to sit off Aston Villa just a little bit too much, paid them a little bit too much respect. I don't know if that was because of a kind of mental block or a mental issue, or if it was because Arsenal was simply running on empty. Remember, we played Liverpool on the Wednesday night at Emirates Stadium in the Premier League. And on the Sunday prior, we played against Leicester City. So Arsenal were going into, what, their third game in six days. It was always going to be a really difficult period. But to come through the two games that you thought we could get something from, i.e. Leicester and Aston Villa with maximum points, and to at least put in a competitive performance against Liverpool, I think means that was a really, really decent week for us. Of course, Manchester United were not in action this weekend because they were scheduled to play Liverpool, who, of course, took part in the weekend's FA Cup tie. So we'll come on to talk about that one in a bit. But that's how this is how the table looks now in terms of the top four race. I'll share it with those of you watching us on YouTube. And for those of you listening uh, via the audio platforms, I will explain it. Don't worry. So as it stands, Arsenal sit in fourth place 
on 54 points, having played 28 games. Tottenham Hotspur are three points behind us, but we've played a game less than them. Manchester United are four points behind us, and they too have played 29 games. So that one game in hand that we have over Tottenham and Manchester United at present is, of course, that game away to Chelsea, which has been slotted in before the weekend we play Manchester United. Look, I've said it time and time again, the games in hand that Arsenal have and and the advantage that some people seem to think we have because of that is not as significant as you think. Remember, away to Chelsea is not a place we've had an awful lot of joy in recent seasons. It's not a place I expect us to go to and win. This is a very, very strong Chelsea side. And I guess the only hope is that they will have their eyes on prizes elsewhere. You know, you've got to think Chelsea are in third position. They're five points ahead of us, um, having played the same amount of games. They've got that five-point cushion. And is there really much difference between finishing third and fourth from their perspective? No, but they are still in the FA Cup. They'll meet Crystal Palace in the semi-final of that. And they are still in the Champions League where they will take on Real Madrid. So I guess that the best thing to hope for is that maybe Chelsea's eyes are elsewhere. Maybe their mind is elsewhere. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. But it's a game in hand that, to me, I'm, I'm not including in my estimations right now. Yes, you have to. Um, technically. And yes, the fact that we do have another game, no matter how difficult, could be an advantage later on in the season if we can pick up the points from it. But when I look at the difficulty of that fixture, I think that we need to be in fourth position in spite of that fixture to stand the best chance of going through. Well, to stand a chance of getting over the line is, is the way I want to put it. I think that Arsenal have some really difficult fixtures left. And as much as we want to be positive about the current run we're on, and we should be, and I am normally Mr. Positive about Arsenal, there is still so much work to do here. Manchester United come to Emirates Stadium, and I think that we're favourites. I don't think there's any doubt about that going into that fixture. If we were to go into that fixture tomorrow um, and it was to be played just like that, we would be the favourites, we're the informed side. But things can change very quickly in the Premier League and Manchester United, as poor as they've been of late, have got the quality to hurt us. They really do. And in a one-off game of football, anything could happen. Tottenham, without question, have the easiest run on paper of the sides in contention. I think West Ham's defeat at Spurs yesterday means that they're just out of it for me. But they, as I say... Um, uh, as I've said, with regards to many clubs, will have their eyes on a different prize. And that'll be the Europa League, where they've moved uh, through to the last eight of. So it's going to be, um, you know, really interesting to see how this pans out. It's not done yet. As I keep saying to you guys, whenever I go on the radio or whenever I go on any sort of more general shows, first thing people say to me is, oh, look, Arsenal are going to get fourth, aren't they? You must be optimistic. You must be happy. I'm optimistic and I'm positive because we're in a good position. But it is far from done. And there's a lot of difficult fixtures, as I say, to come. Even some of the ones that on paper you wouldn't say are as difficult, i.e., uh, do you want to play uh, Newcastle United away at the moment? I don't. Southampton away. They're one of those teams um, that can turn it on on their day, as we've seen on numerous occasions under Ralph Hasenhutl. Then you look at fixtures like Leeds at home, which on paper, I guess you would say if you want to finish in the top four, it has to be a routine home win. But Leeds United could be scraping for their lives. The same can be said of Everton 
who we take on on the last day. So there's so much work to be done that it's naive to think it's already um, in the bag. It's naive to think that Arsenal have already secured fourth place. I hope we do. I hope we get over the line. It would be brilliant, but there's still a long way to go. So let's chill out a little bit on that. Uh, let's quickly touch on Spurs' win over West Ham United before we move on from the Premier League stuff. Not a lot of Premier League action this weekend. Uh, of course, Leicester beat Brentford as well, uh, but not really going to focus on that one. Tottenham, though, getting a massive three points against West Ham. It would have been ideal, wouldn't it, if those two played out a stalemate and it ended in a draw. But Tottenham at home after West Ham had played 120 minutes in the Europa League on Thursday, you always fancied them. Um, I was sitting watching the game with my brother and he had an accumulator bet uh, on which included Tottenham and he was in two minds whether to cash out or not. Uh, before the game went ahead because everything else had gone his way and it was a pretty big one. And I said, no, uh, if it were me, I would stick with it. And and just because of, as I mentioned, the difficulty that West Ham had in midweek overcoming a really stubborn and strong severe side, there were players in that West Ham team on Thursday that were doubts for that match and then had to play 120 minutes. And when I say that, I'm thinking initially of Mikel Antonio. So to then ask him to then replicate that level of performance just a few days later, where his fitness levels were clearly um, not anywhere near their peak, was also, um, you know, was also, was always, sorry, I beg your pardon, going to be a big, big ask. Tottenham, they got an early goal. And once you get an early goal at home, it means that, your opponent, a team like West Ham, who you'd normally expect to keep it quite tight and try and be quite compact, then have to come out and play you. And once that happens, there are spaces that the likes of Harry Kane and Hyungmin Son uh, really kind of do enjoy exploiting. Now, one thing I did take away from that game, watching it on as a, I'm not going to say as a neutral, but as a um, as an onlooker who wasn't supporting either side, and then you can sit and be a little bit more detached and analyse the game I think a little bit better. One thing I did pick out was that when we do go to White Hart Lane at whatever stage that is in the season, remember, as I mentioned earlier on, the Premier League still yet to reschedule that game. I think it's important that although we've kind of made our name recently um, and although we've impressed recently by playing high up the pitch, squeezing people up to the halfway line, um, and, and and looking to press aggressively from the front, I think that that could be a really dangerous way to go against Tottenham, who clearly, under Antonio Conte, like to play the ball out from the back, like to use the back three to kind of stretch apart and then look to pick out Harry Kane in those pockets, who all of a sudden has become prime like David Beckham with the way he just picks out passes over the top for the likes of Son, who's always a willing and very effective runner. So I, I, I'm not really a big fan of veering away from our game. I think that one of the ways that you create a strong identity is by seeing it through week in, week out, and by being almost to a degree stubborn with it and always feeling and always um, trying to play that way. But in this instance, it could be a game where there's a lot riding on it. It could be the game that makes or breaks Arsenal season. It could be the game that gets us back into the Champions League proper and into the big time, which could then, as I mentioned on the show earlier today, accelerate Arsenal's development, accelerate Arsenal's growth. The money that comes with being in the Champions League and the prestige that comes with being in the Champions League could be the difference between Arsenal strengthening 
bringing in good players and bringing in world-class players. It could be that significant. So I am just wondering, having watched that Tottenham performance, if we would be better off being that little bit more compact, not pushing the line up so high and forcing Tottenham essentially to have to come and break us down. Because if you look over the course of the season, and I've watched them a number of times in full during this campaign, that's been a problem for them. When teams do sit back, park the bus almost, if you like, and and ask Tottenham to, to come and break them down, they've not always been able to do that. So I don't know if that would be the better way to go, but we've got plenty of time to think about that. We've got plenty more times that we can watch Tottenham and try and come to some sort of conclusion. And of course, ahead of the game, as we always do, we'll be bringing you a preview in which we'll get into all of that. But right now, that's what's kind of simmering on my mind about how we should perhaps uh, approach this. In the FA Cup, Chelsea uh, defeated Middlesbrough at the Riverside. Lots of controversy going into that game, wasn't there, after Chelsea made that request to have the fixture played behind closed doors. The FA said no uh, and had discussions with Chelsea. Chelsea uh, then were advised to withdraw their request, which, let's be honest, was taking the piss. Um, and then they did exactly that. But Chelsea, when they turned up at the Riverside, despite uh, being in front of a, a big Middlesbrough uh, supporting crowd, they'd done their job and they were incredibly professional, as they have been throughout this entire issue, you know, throughout this entire period where they've been under the sanctions. There's been so much spotlight on Chelsea. They've had their backs up against the wall and they continue to deliver and they continue to get results, even if the football's not been um, as spectacular as they'd maybe like it to be. So you have to give Chelsea credit here. And they've set up, uh, of course, a semi-final uh, with London rivals, Crystal Palace, who dispatched a Frank Lampard's Everton by four goals to nil in their FA Cup sixth round tie at Selhurst Park. Crystal Palace were brilliant, you have to say. And I'm delighted for Patrick Vieira because he gets to take his team to Wembley and he'll finally get uh, some of the plaudits that his season has deserved. I, I mean, I know here and there people have kind of stood up and talked about Patrick Vieira and what a good job he's done, but he's completely reinvented Crystal Palace. He's brought in some really young and talented players and you have to give the club credit for that as well, for backing him in that sense. But they're playing a brand of football that is just almost unrecognisable. You know, we kind of got used to, didn't we, in recent seasons, Roy Hodgson's very dull, very mundane, but functional style of football, uh, which often, well, did every time Roy Hodgson was there, uh, I beg your pardon, keep them in the Premier League. But now they look as though they've gone up to a next level. And look, they're not they're not going to finish uh, particularly high up the table, but they're also nowhere near the relegation zone. So they kind of have earned the right now at this point in the season, I would say, to... I don't want to say take their foot off the gas in the Premier League. I don't think Patrick Vieira would want that or or allow that. But they now have an opportunity where they can shift their attention to the FA Cup and the potential of getting to a final. And look, Chelsea are going to be difficult opponents. It won't be easy to beat a team like Chelsea, who are far superior, have a much bigger squad, uh, a very experienced coach and are one of Europe's heavyweights. In fact, they're still the reigning European champions. But that's not a game that Palace will look at and think is impossible, bearing in mind as well, the issues around ticketing could give Crystal Palace a big advantage here. Are Chelsea going to be allowed to have fans in the stadium? Well, they're not allowed to sell tickets at the moment. So 
it looks like it's going to be uh, a, a crowd made up entirely at Wembley Stadium of Crystal Palace fans. And they have to fancy their chances in this one. Man City or Liverpool wait in the final, which would be very, very difficult. And, you know, if Crystal Palace were to go on and win this cup, it would be one of the underdog stories, wouldn't it? Um, and people would talk about the magic of the FA Cup again. But Palace must fancy their chances of getting to a final here because in a one-off game, there's no reason um, why they can't give Chelsea a run for their money. So, yeah, uh, brilliant from Crystal Palace. Frank Lampard, on the other hand, a little bit strange in his post-match interviews. Again, it feels like he's just pointing the finger at everybody. It feels like he doesn't want to take any responsibility for what's going on. And listen, I understand that he's coming at a difficult period and that a lot of the damage at Everton and a lot of the problems were pre-existing and are already um and we're already set it in. You know, it's not, you know, Frank Lampard's not to blame for Everton being so low down in the table. And he's not to blame for all the poor and really bad recruitment that they've made over the last few years, which now means that they've got a squad that just isn't anywhere near as good enough as it should be. But what I would say is this, I don't think you get players on side by sitting in press conferences and talking about whether or not they have the bollocks to play. If you, the manager, are questioning the integrity of your players and questioning the desire of your players, then that says a lot about what's going on at the football club. And it's a really risky strategy. We've seen some managers adopt it in the past and it worked to good effect. It can be something that galvanises people. It can be the kick up the backside that some footballers need. But it can also be the beginning of the end. It can also lead to people downing tools and causing a friction within the squad. And I, I just think that Frank Lampard's got to be careful here because, yes, they're out of the FA Cup. And of course, nobody wants to lose 4-0 in an FA Cup tie. But the FA Cup tie was not the be all and end all for Everton this season. I know they beat Newcastle the other night, but they need they need to stay in the Premier League. They're too big a club to go down. I know we've said that before, but these lot really are. And Frank Lampard, you know, I think going into the game, he had two choices, didn't he? He could have even looked at it and gone, well, if we can take our minds off the Premier League and get a positive result and book our place in a semi-final, having come through a tie that is winnable, let's be honest, we praised Crystal Palace, but it's not Man City away. It's not Liverpool away. It wasn't the type of fixture you'd have looked at and gone, well, no, um, you know, there's no way we can win that. He might have thought that if he got through, if he scraped through, that could be away from the Premier League, the confidence boost that Everton needed to kick on and uh, and pull away from the drop zone. He went for it. And unfortunately for him, it kind of blew up in his face because Crystal Palace were really good on the day. And Crystal Palace literally dismantled Everton. And now what does that do? Well, it probably dents the confidence even more. If you go out there and you name uh, a weak side and you get beaten, you've always kind of got that fallback, haven't you, in terms of saying, well, you know, we, we didn't want to lose. Obviously, we never want to lose any football match, but, you know, we've got other priorities. I look at this side that he named, though, Godfrey, Keane and Holgate, the back three, Coleman played, Decore was in the midfield with Charleston. Yeah, there were a few players that didn't make the starting lineup first choice goalkeeper as well. It's um, It's a team that should have been competitive and it wasn't. And I'm just wondering if Frank Lampard's decision, A, to, to play the players that he did um, and, and, and think that this could be a, a positive distraction and B, to throw his players under the bus the way he's done 
I wonder if that's going to blow up in his face. I think you're seeing inexperience from him. I really do. Um, and, and I think that Frank Lampard, as I've mentioned before, was the type of appointment that Everton were looking at because they thought they were being progressive and they thought that they were looking ahead and they thought that this would be the right move to stand them in the in good stead going forward. But I feel like they avoid or, or they overlooked the issues at hand today. And when you overlook the issues at hand today, that can be very, very dangerous, particularly in a very competitive Premier League. I think Everton will just about have enough to stay in the division, but it's not looking good for them at the moment. And um, and you can understand the concern in and among the fans. OK, uh, moving on in terms of the FA Cup action, Manchester City, they dispatched of Southampton at St Mary's. Uh, that looked like a tricky one on paper, but in the end, Manchester City running riot and winning by four goals to one. Not a great deal, really to say on that other than it was the expected result. Nottingham Forest, who have been giant killers in the competition this season, remember knocking us out, knocking Leicester out, um, and have gone very, very well in the FA Cup this season. They took on Liverpool at um, uh, in Nottingham and, 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 of course, at the City ground, I beg your pardon. And this was a really difficult tie for Liverpool. You know, you always felt that Liverpool would get through because of their quality, because of how ruthless they've been. We saw it firsthand last Wednesday. They weren't particularly good, but they took opportunities and they didn't give much away. Nottingham Forest, though, gave them a real, real run for their money. And you have to give Nottingham Forest credit. Um, it's an incredible stadium. It's an incredible place to play football. The atmosphere is cracking. I thought Jurgen Klopp was a little bit disrespectful in his pre-match comments where he kind of joked that, you know, Nottingham was about Robin Hood and all of that. I, I, I don't like things like that. You know, when you were growing up, Jurgen Klopp, Nottingham Forest were winning European Cups. So I think it's a bit disrespectful to kind of brush off that question with a bit of a joke, um, as in to suggest that Nottingham Forest are a joke. They are no joke. Um, they're doing really well in the Championship this season. They've proven themselves in the FA Cup against Premier League opposition uh, more than once this this season, this term. And uh, and they missed a really good opportunity, actually, before Liverpool did go and break the deadlock. Spirited performance from them, but Liverpool, as you'd expect, having too much for Nottingham Forest and booking their place in a semi-final against Manchester City. That is going to be a cracker, isn't it? But again, this begs the question and brings up the question around putting fans first, because I've seen a few things going around on social media today. Um, where there are allegedly going to be disruptions to the train services between Manchester and Liverpool, basically the North and London. And of course, the game, the semi-final is scheduled to take, at Wem uh, to take place at Wembley Stadium. First of all, I hate the idea of playing semi-finals at Wembley Stadium. It takes away from the gloss of reaching the final. The whole idea of the final uh, back in the day was that you got to go to Wembley. Like that was the big deal. That was the big thing. And we've kind of diluted that a little bit by allowing the semi-finals to be played there. We used to play them at neutral stadiums. Uh, Old Trafford and Aston Villa's Villa Park were normally the two that were used. Um, and it just feels like in this instance where there is clearly going to be some travel disruption. And you're talking about two teams based in, in the north of England that this game should be played at a neutral. I mean, this game could be played at Old Trafford. You know, or it, it it just it could be played somewhere closer to home for both of those sides. But we're seeing again 
the financial side of football dominating what happens here. We're seeing again a decision being taken with no thought whatsoever for the fans who are going to be in attendance. It's all about the spectacle. It's all about the TV money. It's all about the FA recuperating as much money as they can at Wembley Stadium. And the fans don't even get a second thought. And look, as a fan, if you get, um, of course, to an FA Cup semi-final, you want to be there. But they're not half making it difficult for the fans, are they? It's 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 one of my gripes in modern football. I, and again, going back to that point, circling back to it, I don't like the idea of semi-finals being played at Wembley. As I say, it takes away from the occasion of the final and it dilutes it, in my opinion. So that's our FA Cup roundup, the two semi-finals, Chelsea versus Crystal Palace and, of course, Manchester City versus Liverpool. And that's one of a number of fixtures that those two have coming up against each other. Uh, between now and the end of the season. That could be uh, so, so big. Um, OK, moving on, let's uh, let's talk about uh, Steven Gerrard's comments regarding Bukayo Saka. Now, this really irritated me and probably more than it should have done. But of course, we talked, didn't we, quite a bit in the post-match reaction. And actually, earlier uh, today, when we were discussing uh, the reports regarding Bukayo Saka's new contract, you can check that episode out. It's the last one in your feed, whether you're joining us uh, on YouTube or whether you're joining us um, on the audio platforms. But Steven Gerrard had been talking about uh, Bukayo Saka post-match. And of course, this comment, I believe, was embargoed and has come out a little bit later on. Bukayo Saka, as I said earlier on, had, had taken the opportunity and felt like he needed uh, to go and speak to the referee at halftime because he was getting kicked absolute lumps out of. We talk about the need for protection in situations like this. And in particular, when you're a player like Bukayo Saka, whose game is all about taking people on, is all about pace, is all about trickery, is all about quickness of thought. It's It, it must be incredibly frustrating when every time you move uh, or you get into a position of note, someone comes along and kicks the shit out of you. It's why so many players, I believe, are not interested in coming to the Premier League. So, look, a lot of the world's elite have come, but a lot of the world's elite have stayed way away and preferred La Liga and preferred Serie A in years gone by. Why? Because the physicality level is very, very different. Now, that wasn't always the case, but I believe in the last 20 years or so, the standard of officiating in the Premier League has become so bad that players look at it and fear the, 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 the fact that they might come here and have their legs broken and experience and suffer career-ending injuries. And I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody like Bukayo Saka going and drawing the referee's attention to it. Now, I think Bukayo Saka, as I mentioned earlier on our last show, probably feels now that given he's much more experienced, much more senior, and has a bit more of a profile and a status given his exploits with England, I think he will feel that that he's well within his rights and has that bit of clout now to be able to go up to the referee who was Andy Madley at the weekend and say, look, ref, come on, man, I'm getting kicked shit out of here. Something needs to be done about it. This needs to be addressed. But Steven Gerrard hasn't taken too kindly to that. And actually, Steven Gerrard has got on my nerves here. And this is just a, a bit of the quote um, from Steven Gerrard. In fact, actually, if I click on the article, um, we should get all of the quote because there's a little bit um, there's a little bit more to this. So Bukayo Saka was asked about it and he told BT Sport after the game, I wasn't complaining to the ref, 
But I just wanted to let him know that that's my game, running at players with pace. And sometimes I need a bit more protection when players are purposely trying to kick me. This is what Steven Gerrard had to say. It's part of the game. The last time I checked, it's not a no-contact sport. I think tackles are allowed and physicality is allowed. He's a good player. He's an outstanding talent and I love him. But he can't complain about that side. That's football. I'm screwing here. Uh, sorry, I'm screwing here. <laughs> Whoops. I'm sitting here now with screws in my hips. I've had about 16 operations. I'm struggling to go to the gym at the moment. That's all on the back of earning a living in English football. He'll learn and he'll learn quick. Hold on a minute. What has Bukayo Saka got to do with Steven Gerrard having 16 operations and screws um, in his in his hips? Nothing. Nothing at all. So Steven Gerrard is clearly bitter about some of the issues that he had um, when he was playing. But the bottom line here is that Steven Gerrard's comments couldn't be further wider the mark. Nobody's saying that physicality isn't allowed. Physicality to me in football is pace, it's strength, it's being strong in a shoulder to shoulder, using your body to hold people off, leaping above somebody, um, being big enough to hold off um, people when, when you come together. Purposely kicking someone, that's not allowed in football and it's never been allowed in football. Has the threshold for what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable changed over the years? Of course it has. But at no point has committing a foul ever been acceptable, let alone on purpose, which is why we give free kicks and yellow cards and red cards off the back of fouls. So Stephen Gerrard's comment to me is absolute tripe. And it's it's disappointing because I watched Stephen Gerrard um, sort of from the beginning of his... Well, I watched him as a player as well, of course. And, and he was a player that I never liked because I'm an Arsenal man. Why would I like him? But I always had admiration for him and the way he was so committed to Liverpool. You know, he had opportunities to leave the club and he had opportunities to go elsewhere. Chelsea, most notably, where he could have won a lot more. He could have won some Premier League titles and he didn't because of his loyalty to Liverpool Football Club. I then watched him go on and become a manager and actually thought he did a really, really good job at Rangers. But I remember specifically Steven Gerrard coming out as Rangers boss, asking for his players to receive more treatment, uh, sorry, more protection and better treatment from the referees. And then he's gone and contradicted himself um, by making these comments about Bukayo Saka. I thought he had a lot more integrity than that. I had a lot more respect for Steven Gerrard uh, prior to this incident. And now I just think he's just so wide of the mark. Now, is there an element of Steven Gerrard being frustrated and disappointed by his team's performance and that uh, leading to him maybe kind of seeing red mist and, and, and having his kind of judgment clouded, perhaps, because Aston Villa was shit, let's be honest. But also, um, aside from that, he he gave, I thought, a really classless interview to Des Kelly of BT Sport directly after the game as well, where he kind of had a go at Des Kelly. And listen, Des Kelly seems to always end up on the brunt of um, of people associated with Liverpool uh, when they're angry in interviews. But he called one of Des Kelly's questions dumb. Um, I think that was the term he used. It was something to that effect anyway. And considering that he and Des Kelly worked together at BT Sport, again, 
I'm not saying that you should hold back and you shouldn't be honest in interviews, but I do think there's a level of respect that needs to be upheld, um, you know, between sort of um, people that have been in that position and people that are in that position today. I, I, I didn't like Stephen Gerrard's reaction to the game in general, and this just kind of um, sort of added to that. Lost a lot of respect for him over the weekend, I got to say, and um, where I'd be, where I'd been saying a few weeks ago that I think he's a really good manager and I like the way he conducts himself and I like the way he carries himself, still doesn't really change my opinion on his quality as a manager. But I think when you're a manager, this sounds really stupid and maybe people in the chat will disagree with this. I think that what you have to say is that if you're not likable, it brings on more pressure. So Jurgen Klopp is, the, and I don't want to get stuck on this too long because we've got other stuff to talk about, but just quickly, Jurgen Klopp is the prime example of a manager who came into England and charmed the media from the outset. And in charming the media, he got given a much easier ride at the beginning of his tenure when things weren't going very well. And then, of course, he had the time and he got things right. And now Liverpool are in a position where they're a formidable force. They're a brilliant team. Um, they're one of the best teams in Europe. Some would argue they are the best team in Europe. And now Jurgen Klopp has almost earned the right to be a little bit more prickly, uh, to be a little bit more sharp. Not sharp, because that's the wrong term. Um, blunt. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for the opposite. To be a little bit more blunt in interviews, because now he's proven himself as a manager and he doesn't really need the media to be on his side. He's been there, done that. He's passed that stage. I always think as a manager starting out, and, and this is obviously not football related, but the way you manage the media, I think is very, very important. And it can make or break you because it determines how hard people stick the boot in when your team are not doing well and when things aren't going as the way you like. I think that Mikel Arteta um, didn't do this very well at the start of his tenure either. He came across as this kind of arrogant, um, you know, figure who was very sort of forthright about his opinions and, and was, I thought, at times quite prickly as well. And I always felt that at the time when we were going through a really difficult period, that that was contributing um, to the treatment he was getting in the media and from some of our fans as well. So I think Steven Gerrard, considering he's much more experienced than Mikel Arteta was and is, should have um, should have learned from that. And um, maybe not learned directly from Arteta's case, but should be more streetwise to that and more aware of that. And I think that his interview this weekend and then subsequent comments about Bukayo Saka have painted him in a very different picture. And I think there'll be a lot of people out there, even with no connections to Arsenal, who will feel the same way about Steven Gerrard moving forward. Unnecessary comments. And, and I think he's so wide of the mark. In fact, I'd go as far as calling them embarrassing. Moving on, let's talk about William Saliba, who, of course, has being called up to the French national team for the first time. He's going to make his first um, senior. We don't know if he's going to get the appearance yet, but his first senior contribution to the France squad. He will be joining up with them. And that is a reward for what's been a really positive season uh, for the young Frenchman. It's not always been uh, plain sailing, particularly in the last few months where his performances have been criticised at times. But William Saliba uh, is making a mark. And I'm delighted to see that he's been included in the French squad for the upcoming matches. Uh, just a bit more 
on uh, William Saliba, Sam Dean re uh, reported earlier today that although Arsenal at the moment plan to keep hold of William Saliba, no contract talks have been opened with regards to extending his current deal, which runs until 2024. I wonder if Arsenal would just want to have another look at him back at Emirates Stadium, back in red and white before making that decision. But listen, it didn't go well um, when he first arrived, not even for footballing reasons, just because I think there was a breakdown in communication. There was a bit of resentment on Saliba's part for the way he was treated. And I completely get and understand that. Um, and Arsenal now, if they do feel that he is one for the future, need to make it up to him. They need to grovel a little bit. And they've got the opportunity to do that in the summer. If we are in Europe and Touchwood, we are. There will be more fixtures. There will be more game time for him. There will be um, more opportunities to shine. And uh, and I guess, given that he's still got a couple of years to run on the contract, they're not panicking just yet. But I, I spoke earlier on on the Saka episode about, on the Chronicles of Aguna Extra, about the need to be proactive rather than reactive and, and I think that this applies here as well, because if Saliba has one good season when he returns and we don't manage to get anything done in terms of extending that deal, he then goes in to 2023 being in the last year of his contract. And that puts us in a really shit position. You'd hope that Arsenal would be doing well and that he'd have performed and he personally would want to stay at the club. But there's no guarantee of that. So you want to protect your asset and you want to go early. But equally, we've gone early in the past. Or maybe not gone early, but we've gone big in the past to try and avoid these situations. And it's come back to bite us in the arse. So that that element of pragmatism that I think needs to be applied in these situations is applicable here. But also we have to be proactive rather than reactive um, in, in dealing with his future. The other bit I want to talk about just before I get some of your questions in the chat, but while I do uh, talk about it, Feel free to start putting those questions in there and I'll pick out as many as I possibly can for the last sort of 15 minutes or so of the show. I do want to talk about Aubameyang. We are going to talk about Aubameyang uh, in just a moment. But quickly, let me remind you guys that if you haven't done so already, if you could please hit the like button, that would really, really help. Uh, we're only on 71 likes. If we can get that up to 100 by the time this stream ends, that would be amazing. Uh, so please do hit that like button. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the channel if you are new. And um, yeah, uh, I look forward to reading through your questions. Um, one second. OK, yeah, cool. Let's go on to Aubameyang because Aubameyang lit up El Clasico last night. Well, by the time you're listening on audio on Sunday night, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scored a couple of goals for Barcelona in the Camp Nou during a heavy victory over Real Madrid. Uh, he also provided a really delicious assist as well, uh, where he sort of backheeled the ball into the path of Ferran Torres, who ran onto it and found the top corner. I don't want to take anything away from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, but if any of you saw the game yesterday, I don't think anybody can deny that Real Madrid were a shit show. They were without Karim Benzema and Carlo Ancelotti tried, in my opinion, to compensate for that by overthinking it. He completely changed the way that Real Madrid played. He went with the whole false, false nine idea and it was just a complete and utter shit show. It was a complete mess. Um, and, and that contributed to it being a really easy night for Barcelona. They were 2-0 up at halftime. Aubameyang got the first goal. Really good header, cross coming 
from Usman Dembele on the right-hand side. And Aubameyang nodded it in at the near post. Good header. Then Araujo scores from a set piece um, late in the second half, which doubled Barcelona's lead. And then they come out straight away after the halftime break to make it three, essentially killing off Real Madrid before Aubameyang added another uh, with a really good finish, by the way, delightful finish. Um, there was a bit of, uh, of a, a delay on that one because of the VAR check, but he was found to be onside and the goal stood. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a top striker, okay? Nobody of, of sensible mind has ever denied that. When he came to Arsenal, he captured our hearts immediately, performed to an incredibly high level. And he did a lot for us. You know, you could argue that that last FA Cup that Arsenal won was basically won solely by Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. A couple of goals in the semi against uh, City and a couple of goals in the final against Chelsea. He single-handedly delivered Mikel Arteta that trophy. No doubt about it. But sometimes relationships just don't work anymore. And that is exactly what happened between Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Arsenal. You know, there might be people like Piers Morgan on social media trying to stir up this narrative that Arsenal made a dreadful mistake in moving Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on. But when you look at our record since his departure, or since he was left out of the team, and compare it to, to our record prior, how can you make the case that this was a bad decision or it was the wrong decision? He's scoring goals for Barcelona. Yes, we always knew he could score goals. But he's scoring goals in a different league where the pace of the game is very different, in a totally different tactical setup. He's thriving um, under Xavi. And that's great. I'm happy for him. I'm not bitter about it in the slightest. But it wasn't working at Arsenal. It wasn't working for the last six, seven months of his Arsenal career, you could say. Maybe even longer. So to sit here now and say that it was a, it was a, a massive mistake and... You know, Mikel Arteta should be criticised for it, I think is is ridiculous. I wish him all the best. I'm glad to see him doing well. I genuinely am. But it wasn't working. And I've I've been told, and and I know I'm not, you know me, I don't I don't seek to be the ITK. Okay. I, I don't seek to to be that guy. Um, but when I from time to time do hear something, I, I want to share it with you guys. And Pierre Emerick Bamiang did return late back from his trip when he was going to see his mum. He returned on the morning of the game. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. He returned on the morning of training, which they discussed he wouldn't do. He didn't get a COVID test. He turned up at the ground and his attitude towards it was, well, I can just get a COVID test at the ground. Yeah, but if you've got COVID, mate, you've already bought it to the training ground. That's the whole bloody point. And, you know, he refuses, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang refuses to take any responsibility for the falling out between he and Mikel Arteta. Now, I do believe that Mikel Arteta wanted to make an example out of him um, because of those disciplinary breaches, but also was happier to do it because he already realised and already sussed a while back that he wasn't really the fit for this system and this style of play. Doesn't mean he's shit. Doesn't mean he's bad. Before people jump on me in the comments, that's not what I'm saying for a second. But he he wasn't working in our current system and in our current setup. That is undeniable. Was that 
just because of his style. Uh, not just because of it, it was partly down to it, but it was also because he seemed to have down tools. You can't look at the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang that you saw last night in the Bernabeu and say that he was playing at Arsenal with the same smile, with the same drive, with the same determination, because he wasn't. He down tools, clearly. And the fact that he refuses to take any responsibility for it is what I expected. Mikel Arteta is not going to take any responsibility either. Nobody will. Everybody will pass the buck. Everybody will blame the other. But Mikel Arteta is getting results at the moment. And so it's unfair, while Arsenal are picking up results, to every time Aubameyang scores a goal for Barcelona, to get your knives out, jump on social media and start being critical of the manager. If Arsenal go and finish in the top four and then go and bring in a striker that's much more suitable to the system and that goes on to be our main man for many years to come, then you will all look back, even into Yanan in the chat, who never wants to say anything positive about Arteta or an Arsenal and who gets upset when we do talk positively about Arsenal. Long time no see, by the way. Good to see you joining us uh, for the first time in a while. If you're like that, then even you will have to, at some point, admit that Mikel Arteta's call was vindicated. That's where I am on this. You know, it's stop looking for a reason to beat the club and beat the manager when we're in a really strong position. When things go bad, when things go shit, there will be criticism and criticism is part and parcel of football. But to actively seek reasons to have a go at the manager and to keep focusing and looking on a player that his head was gone from Arsenal a long time ago and was offering us nothing at the time of his departure and try and stir up trouble again. It's just for me, it's just, I can't get my head around it. I don't understand why so-called Arsenal fans want to do that. You know, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. If we, if we, if we let Aubameyang go and then stop scoring goals, then I would say, okay, you got a point. It's like when Mesut Ozil wasn't in the team and we weren't creating. There was an obvious solution to that problem. If only the two parties could come together and get to some kind of um, come to some kind of compromise and just get on with the football. But it didn't happen. But since Aubameyang's come out of the team, overall Arsenal have improved going forward as a team. Lacazette doesn't score enough goals as an individual. I agree with that. But as a team, we've, um, you know, we, we've improved by quite some distance as well. And he's somebody that we're better off without in the long run. We talk a lot about culture. We talk a lot about building the right environment for the team to succeed. And somebody like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang wasn't helping that. Was it helpful to have our captain banished from the side and training alone? Was that, was the media coverage and all the bits that come with that positive? Was that doing us good? No, of course it wasn't. So I think it was the right decision and people would disagree, but that's um, that's where I'm at on it. Uh, Chris808 says, uh, but if you have a player of that calibre, wouldn't you play to his strengths? I agree normally that you should try and get the maximum out of your players. For example, let's take the Man United case, right? How many times this season have we read that Ronaldo's the problem at Man United? Well, Ronaldo is that good a player. He's that good a centre-forward that you need to find a way to get the maximum out of him because you need results and you need them today. Ralph Ranić, though, has gone in there as an interim coach 
with the task of stopping the rot that was happening under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and getting that team into the Champions League for next season ahead of them then going out and bringing in the manager they want and then rebuilding properly. So it's all about results. But with us, the situation's a little bit different. Yeah, of course, it's about results. It always is to a degree. But Arsenal are rebuilding. That's been so abundantly clear based on the way they've backed Mikel Arteta, based on the type of players that we've gone for. And so, yeah, Aubameyang is, is a good player and a good striker. And you could argue that you should look to play to his strengths, but not to the detriment of what you're building overall. And he clearly was having a negative impact on what we were building. Our football wasn't anywhere near as free-flowing as it is today with Aubameyang in the side. It just wasn't, generally speaking, because his link-up play was non-existent. His attitude towards the manager was obviously a problem as well. It undermined the manager. I, I'd imagine that it caused some divides behind the scenes as well, if I'm speculating. All of those things mean that we're better off without him in the long run. And he was never going to stay beyond next season anyway. So all we did was accelerate the process of moving him on and looking elsewhere. I, I think I think it was the right call. Um, I really, really do. Uh, Walhad says, I don't agree with you often, but believe me, we're better off without him in the long run. Um, what else have we got? Uh, doo -doo 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 -doo. Henry Gunas says, Aubameyang doesn't play for Arsenal. Arteta ball is the way forward. Mr. Miyagi says, my only problem is we should have got a fee. Look, in an ideal world, we'd have loved to have got a fee for him. But given those wages that he was on, it was always going to be difficult to convince a club, A, to take that on or enough of a proportion of that for him to agree to a move and then get a fee out of them. I think football is going to change over the next few years. I really do believe that. Like the, the COVID pandemic in a lot of ways has led to a bit of a reset um, in, in a lot of ways. And there are clubs that have sugar daddies and have this and that and are state owned and have the ability to throw crazy amounts of money about. But there are also clubs financially who are not in good places and Barcelona certainly one of them. Uh, Patrick says La Liga is just a dead league. My nan could score there. Um, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying it's a, a dead league, but it is. And I don't, um, I definitely don't think my nan could score there, but it, um, it's certainly not the level it was in, in years gone by. I agree. Uh, Sko says it's done. Harry, the debate is in the bin. Arteta made those calls. We're all playing well now. He got it right. End of story. Love that. Uh, what else have we got in the chat? Uh, Inter responds. He says, I'm not a supporter of this process. Said it countless times. Arsenal have had massive help this season with how poor Spurs and United have been. Well, you might not like the process. You might not like the methodology. But if Arsenal do get into the top four this season, people like yourself will be made to look silly because you all said there was no chance. In fact, you probably said we were going to finish mid-table. You probably said at the start of the season that we were going to get relegated. So people like yourself who don't believe in the process, and that's fine, that's your opinion, whether you like it or not, if Arsenal go on to finish in the top four, you will look silly come the end of the season. You will, and and, and that's fact. Um, what else have we got? Uh Patrick makes the point that Aubameyang was missing sitters as well uh, a lot at, towards the end of his uh, Arsenal career. Absolutely. Um, Peeny Ween says, where's the flat cap? It's over there to my left. <laughs> Didn't fancy it today. Uh, what else have we got? Omar uh, points out Aubameyang's tweet where I think it was, uh, let me just bring it up on my screen, but it was something to do with I'm not a finished player or something, wasn't it? Um, that, no, hello from the finished player. Yeah. 
nobody said he was finished. They just said that he wasn't the right man for Arsenal anymore and that it, it wasn't working. And I think we can all accept that. Uh, what else have we got in the chat box? Um, <laughs> Reggie Perry says, <laughs> I watched El Clasico and Oba was literally hanging out the back, smoking a blunt, waiting for the ball to come to him. It was really that easy. It really, really was um, that easy for Real Madrid, uh, for Barcelona. I beg your pardon. Last night, even Xavi came out, didn't he, in his post-match press conference and said, I didn't expect the game to be that easy. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Vitaliano uh, Delgado says that tweet was uh, targeted to the Spanish media. Uh, they said he was finished. Maximus seems to think it was directed at Paul Merson. So clearly there's been a few people that have come out and made that comment about Aubameyang and he felt the need to make that point off the back of that. Okay, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. So in summary, Arsenal's win, a big one, but uh, but Spurs are hot on our heels and we've got to keep on the ball and keep alert going into the remainder of the season. Of course, Manchester United still in the race too. The FA Cup semi-finals have been set. Manchester City take on Liverpool whilst Chelsea face Crystal Palace. Stephen Gerrard is a bit of a moron. Uh, William Saliba has been called up to the French squad for the first time, although there's no progress yet on his new deal uh, that has been rumoured with the Arsenal. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is doing great in Spain. Good for him. And Frank Lampard needs to watch the way he throws his players under the bus. We'll be back very, very soon tomorrow, in fact, with more Arsenal-related content. If you're listening via the audio, we'll have another episode dropping for you a little bit later on today. Uh, I'll be joined by Mike Stavry. We'll be doing our predictions for the rest of the season and trying to work out where the battle for the top four could be won and lost. Don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe to the channel if you are new. We'll be back very soon. Until next time, take care of yourselves and stay safe. Goodbye. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.